Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Welcome to another Tactical Tuesday, conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business and growing your career and impact here on Suncast. Today, we're taking a look back at some of the best moments from the podcast last year. It was a year chock full of learning and amazing contributions from literal rocket scientists and industry icons, as well as some of our favorite content partnerships. We're going to bring you some nuggets and I would encourage you to go ahead and queue up the longer episodes as well, because they are among our most downloaded and talked about conversations of the year, of course. You can always find the links to those longer form episodes, along with learning more about each guest and the content that we shared in each one of those conversations in our show notes over at mysuncast.com. If you're new here and you love this kind of content and learning, well, I hope you'll subscribe to the show in whatever podcast player you use, maybe even over on YouTube as we're increasingly posting these up on YouTube as well. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you won't miss our twice weekly content just like this geared towards increasing your impact and income in the solar revolution, my friend. You can also join our thriving community of solar warriors and climate champions by clicking on the community tab. Again, that's mysuncast.com. For now, let's get down to business and tune up your skills, solar warrior as we look back at the best of 2022 here on Suncast. All right, first up, the rocket scientist. I mentioned none other than Mr. Michael Burrs and one of the top podcasts of all time on the Suncast podcast. Candidly, to my surprise, not because it's not worthy of it, but simply because we were talking about a topic that I just didn't think was going to get a ton of traction, that of zinc batteries. But maybe it's because we came up with a really great title for the episode. In this clip, Michael and I discuss finding the right partner and the right product. Here we go with a clip from episode 448 with Michael Burrs. A lot of folks have different questions for Tesla. My question is why the Lotus one? Like why that chassis? (laughs) This is like, it's a, you may have the answer, but it is one of those like design questions, right? You You go, wow, like this is really hard not to crack. First, you're going to go for a premium market I could, I could probably fabricate all the things I think might have played into it, but I'm not an engineer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well on, a, on, a, on a separate conversation, yeah, we could we could kind of talk. I thought it was it was a brilliant approach, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because the Lotus chassis, you know, is kind of a fiberglass uh, composite, so it's lightweight, and that uh, they build just a few, you know, I mean, a few hundred of these cars per year, right? Mm-hmm. So the engineering team at Lotus is willing to adapt the chassis. I mean, you yeah. couldn't go you couldn't go to General Motors and say, you know, I really love that Corvette and, yeah. and you've got a brilliant, you know, lightweight exoskeleton, if you will, 
and and you've got a really nice frame. How, how about if we go modify it? You know, right. General Motors would kind of go like, look, we're already working on EV1 or we've already done that. No, right. but Lotus, you know, had, I think, the right vehicle and the right engineering approach and manufacturing that they could go actually modify those. And it speaks to finding the right partner. Exactly. Which, which is something that every entrepreneur in the path to product market fit has to encounter. You know, one of the things that I noticed when I was get, kind of getting to know your story is you're potentially familiar with other similar stories. I'll name two that listeners would recognize and might not know, might not immediately know the backstory of. So Next Tracker was spun out of effectively like a, well, not, I won't like Solaria was definitely not a failed product. It was taking far longer than anybody thought to get Solaria's product to market. And they had many, many pivots before they have what is now a knock a home run product that they're doing fantastic with, but they had to spin Dan sugar, rightly spun next tracker out as a product category because he looked at the guts and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This thing that you're doing is really cool, right? Another one, most people probably don't know this, but the Selectria inverter is they're based in Boston. The, the guys that founded Selectria had created the inverter as an electric car product. It was meant to be used in electric car propulsion systems and if I'm not mistaken, I could be way off here, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. It was, they originally were trying to make a, a, a kit, like an electric car kit. And they were just, you know, 15 years too early and they, or maybe 20, but they realized that their electric conversion device was, you was, was highly useful. And thus Selectria was born, which now Yaskawa, for those who haven't been in the industry long enough, is basically what, what, you know, they bought the Selectria brand. And it sounds like that's a bit of how your current startup evolved. That's correct. Okay. No, you're, you're absolutely right along the right path. You know, we, we were, we, the, the, the original team were using kind of the aerospace automotive uh, systems approach, right? Mm-hmm. I talked about how, you know, aerospace engineering and me in particular like to look at kind of the system. So we were doing kind of a system evaluation of what, you know, an electric car should be. You know, we came to the conclusion, number one, here are the attributes, but number two is we don't have the money you know, Mm. to be able to try and create what that vision was. But in that search for, you know, both the design of it, uh, you know, how you're going to build it and the propulsion system at the core, of course, is the battery. And we took a look at that and we had had started talking with uh, Dr. Bruce Dunn at the California Nanosystems Institute, UCLA. And he was the one who came along and said, you know, everybody's looking at this lithium battery and we think that there is an alternative to that, and it's uh, zinc, but zinc in a three-dimensional form, different than anybody else has been looking at zinc. Uh, that led us to say, "Huh, um, this could be, you know, pretty pretty interesting from a whole different, a whole bunch of different aspects, right?" Yeah. But uh, Dr. Dunn's approach was academically interesting, mm-hmm. but not commercially viable. But that's okay, because what he was showing is that the three-dimensional structure could actually provide zinc attributes. And, he, and that's where he introduced us to Dr. Deborah Rowlandson at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory and her team. She was actually his partner. And what they were doing was they were working on a battery for the Navy with mm-hmm. money funded from the Office of Naval Research to make a safer battery, yeah. believe it or not, that could be used in a battlefield situation. And yeah. it was a zinc air battery, but it was a disposable. It wasn't a rechargeable. Right. But it, it had certain attributes 
Well, when we looked at what Dr. Dunn and team were looking at, which think of it as kind of the the academic reason for a three-dimensional structure, mm-hmm. Deborah and her team were actually looking at uh, sponge structures. So whereas Dr. Dunn was looking at essentially something that looked like a hairbrush, you mm-hmm. know, high aspect ratio rods, Dr. Rollinson was looking at the other side, the cathode side at a sponge structure. And, and so when we were started talking with Dr. Rollinson, we had both come to the same conclusion that maybe a sponge zinc structure. And she said, you know, kind of funny that you're saying that we actually came to that conclusion and we've made some prototypes. And that's mm. how we got involved with the uh, U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. Mm. But that's but you're absolutely right. We pivoted. We, you know, we took a look at this and said, here's electric cars. These are really cool. But if you take a look at the energy storage, right. not only could it be used for cars, but it could be used for a whole bunch of other applications, particularly you know, in the renewable energy space. And that kind of led us in the path of defining and designing the battery. Up next is a name that most will recognize, the CEO of Sunrun, Ms. Mary Powell, leading such an impactful and powerful company, comes with its challenges but Mary has overcome many challenges in her career, not the least of which is being a female in a male-dominated industry. And in this segment, Mary talks all about how being a woman in a male-dominated industry is, in fact, a strength. Here we go with a clip from episode 450 with Mary Powell. I hear in the way that you led Green Mountain a lot of the things that I see and hear in, uh, you know, in the way you present yourself publicly now as a leader at at Sunrun, one of the things that has for a long time been important for most of us in the solar industry, most of us in sort of climate change is the idea of being a a B corporation without needing to go necessarily into all the details of B corporation. Many listeners are going to know what it is, but you in fact were the first B Corp utility in the, in the world, I believe. Why was that important? You had so many other things and, and to layer on, this sort of obligation that a B Corp uh, applies or, or sort of implies, why was that important to the mission that you were on? Well, you know, what I like to say about that at Greenmount, I mean, what was so cool is we became a B Corp way before we became a B Corp. I mean, uh, by the time we actually talked to our board about like, hey, would you like to actually get this certification? We already scored decently as a B Corp. You know, and again, I, I talk a lot about culture strategy, you know, and so for me, like the cultural foundation is probably the most fo- important foundation of any company. It's, it's, you know, what are the cultural attributes you're driving towards? And again, love of people, love of planet, love, you know, again, very strong environmental focus. So yeah, we really just sort of naturally became one as a, as a company that was obsessed with, you know, you know, energy justice with like, right. So by the time we actually went through the process, it was not to say it wasn't a lot of work. It was, uh, you know, some amazing team members to actually, you know, you have to really certify things and it's, it is very rigorous, you know, back to your question of why we ultimately decided, well, why not put a label on it since we already are one anyway. Um, For us, I think it felt like, such a great demonstration of how we felt like we were different, like we weren't your typical utility. And and we wanted to, you know, put sort of put a seal on it in any way, shape or form that we could. 
both as a demonstration to our customers, to our stakeholders, to our regulators, right? That it's that we, you know, we are we are an outlier <laughs> and we're a proud outlier in the space that we're in because, you know, the planet's on fire. We need to move a lot faster. Um, and so, again, anything we could that sort of put a put a seal on it, we wanted to do. Well, that makes a ton of sense to me, Mary, and I appreciate you giving the the perspective on it. Uh, you've mentioned a number of times of being sort of this feeling of being an outsider and an outlier. Even it's not lost on anyone who looks at broadly the energy sector and, and even the renewable sector that you have been a woman in a male dominated industry. A lot of folks might at first look at that as a weakness, as though the cards are stacked against you. The deck is stacked. Um, I However, consider it to be a strength for a lot of the reasons that you've mentioned earlier. And I just want to ask you, do you feel like it helped being a woman in a male dominated industry, either by giving you the ability to act as though you're not sure how to, how to do this, like a potential naivety, even though you came from a position of very strong fundamentals um, or what other elements of that might you add or, or unpack for us um, regarding the sort of that, oh, I, I, I want to call it the gender dynamic, but it's just the reality that we face where we want to see more uh, female leaders. We actually have lots of statistics that show that female leadership leads to uh, greater returns in Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Sunrun is an example of that. Yeah, wonderful. So I would say, yes. I mean, we need more diversity of all types. I mean, that's, you know, back to the magic of teams, you know, the, the more differences you have, the more diversity you have, the more representation you have of those you're serving, the stronger you will be, you know, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, you know, back to sort of how I felt in, you know, I mean, again, I would say for me, the overarching thing was more that, you know, not just was I like one of like, I think three women CEOs when I became Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an investor owned utility CEO. Um, but it, you know, I, I definitely was the only CEO, I think in the country that wasn't an engineer or a lawyer. So it wasn't mm -hmm. actually just that I was of a different gender. It was that I didn't have any of the academic accoutrement that, you, you know, that you would, that you would see. So, you know, again, I think the best way to describe it is, you know, I was very comfortable feeling alone, you know, and, it, and it's funny because I, I took this, you know, again, I've taken a lot, like I, I encourage a lot of people just take as many personality type things as you can, because it gives yeah. you so much of a deeper understanding of not just yourself, but more important, your impact on others. And, you know, this one I took, I, I would say a couple of years ago, she just said, did you realize how off the charts you are? in independence and all of a sudden it made so much sense because she said that's that's one of the reasons why you're so comfortable in this sort of the expression of lo it's lonely at the top or it's lonely when you're you know i would go to these utility conferences and yeah it was it was odd i mean literally like no one would talk to me at the break <laughs> i felt like wow. i had to like insert myself awkwardly in these conversations and then i think to myself you know what I don't really want to be talking to you either. Anyway. Oh, wow. So I'd go for a jog or something, you know, like I don't so need I just, you. I love this. Yeah, I, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like the, the folks I've always felt like that I 
need are the folks I'm working with every day. Like those are the ones I, I adore and I need. And I, you know, I, I build really deep connections with, but yeah. So I feel like it really just, again, I, nothing I was going to do was going to make me an insider. Like I wasn't going to look like one. I wasn't going to have the pedigree of one. So just be the outlier that you are. Like that's for me, that's, and, and, and again, always knowing what your purpose is and your North star, like always working hard at having my goals and aspirations be as divorced as they can be from my own pride and ego. And that's, as we all know, as human beings, that's way easier said than done. <laughs> so it does not by any stretch of the imagination mean that I'm saying I'm devoid of pride and ego, but I've worked really hard at, again, being, being an outlier in some ways, I think made that easier because I wasn't, I, I don't know, I wasn't going to get that kind of natural adoration that comes when you come from certain schools with certain backgrounds with, right. So again, it all for me just tied back to allowing me to just feel like, Hey, I'm doing like what I think is the next best thing for the planet, for the people I serve. And you know, and I won't worry about how you judge me based on it because I'm driven by that thing. I'm not driven by your opinion of me. And, and I feel like it really, and, and it even allowed me at some of the most challenging times, you know, doing some of these, some of this work, cause it's not easy. I mean, anybody who's built a wind farm knows it's not for the faint of heart, you know, and you get attacked and it really always helped me because I literally was able to say to myself, it's not about whether I keep my job. I don't keep my job. It's not about me. Like it's about what we're trying to accomplish together. So yeah. that would be what I would keep centering myself back to. And it's, and it's, you know, it's what I do. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck you're listening to Suncast and you've probably as a result heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three Key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto 
and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. All right, clip number three is my friend Dave Kenny over at Omnidian. Now, we did a fantastic series called Beyond O&M, The Future of Solar. From this first episode, Dave goes into the ability to identify performance issues before they happen. And it's something that we talked about time and time again through that series. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the whole series, of course. But I loved this snippet from Dave. Here we go with a clip from episode 507 with Dave Kenny. One of the things that impressed me when I was kind of learning a bit about the Omnidian platform is the level of, uh, and now I understand a whole lot more, sophistication around the ability to be proactive, the ability to actually identify these performance issues before they happen. Can you unpack for me a little bit what that actually looks like in service? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off script here and, and course correct on the question. So if you're in a factory... If you're making carpets in a factory, you're looking at runtime on machines and you're doing some math to predict when a machine will break before it breaks and you're servicing it that weekend ahead of a breakage. That's the idea of predictive, right? We're not doing that in solar. This is proactive in the sense that we are uh, paying attention and we are actively reacting to, but in all cases, we're reacting to a failure that has occurred and finding it quickly and initiating a response quickly. I think there's a couple of things I want to just clarify, make sure I'm clear on and, and maybe even get some insight from you on. But it does sound like with over 100,000 years of data, the ability to correlate symptoms, kind of like a doctor can say, I think we may have found something here, even though it would have eventually manifest itself in something more dire, so to speak. It's kind of like, that having a stethoscope on the system and it gives you insight into and it allows what might be termed proactive action on the part of the person or entity monitoring the system. I'm curious if you have any performance metrics around with this sum of data, the ability to provide what is essentially like real-time reactivity versus sort of waiting around like like I said before the Maytag repairman to hear that something has gone wrong, which is the, I think the purpose of the foundational understanding of how this collection of data can provide greater insights. The reference to the Maytag repairman, I think is a good one, Nico, and helps frame up the the topic and really the opportunity here. As an industry, we don't want uh, asset owners to have to play the role of finding a problem and picking up the phone and calling to ask for support and service. Imagine a world where the phone rings and you answer the phone and the person at the other end of the phone tells you that your asset has recently had a performance problem, that the problem is associated with a particular root cause, and that we can either help you troubleshoot and resolve the issue live on the phone, schedule a time at your convenience to have that call, 
or schedule at your convenience uh, service work to have somebody come out to your uh, facility, to your home, to your site, and fix the problem for you. That's the experience that we're looking for. And, you know, we've got a couple hundred uh, reviews now that have built up over time. And a lot of them are five-star reviews. We've got a 4.7 average star rating. And you look at those five-star reviews and you think about what's behind them. There are three things behind those five-star reviews. Number one, someone else found the problem. Number two, someone else helped facilitate a resolution to that problem. And number three, there was uh, great communication across that experience. If you get those three things right, you build up a portfolio of these five-star reviews and really start to change the paradigm of how assets can be managed in the industry. David also helps to reinforce the original promise made that for years we've said, you set it and forget it. And while we know by the data you presented earlier that there's a variance across even tier one modules, but there is invariably breakage in the system. And by breakage, we mean that it doesn't hit the mark. Either the inverter goes out or something causes there to be a deficit in kilowatt hours created. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, right, the ultimate reason that anybody goes solar beyond just a sense of personal security or resilience or sort of getting off of uh, some sort of central generation technology, it is to save money. It is to be able to be in control of that asset, to be able to know and have more certainty about that, to make it a capex instead of a variable expense, right? And I think one of the things that I'd like to explore with you is when we think about installers, service people, promise makers, project developers, being the ones who up to now have either have had to deploy their own resources to go and respond to these projects, uh, kind of a couple things have happened. The, they've sent maybe the wrong people, uh, but also they've sent the wrong people or even the right people at the wrong times for the wrong types of alerts, not because they are willing to just throwing money out the window, but because they didn't have access to enough data. Can you talk a bit about the ability to get more granular and at the end of the day, actually provide not just better service to the client, but better service in the industry that makes everything more efficient from a dollar spent perspective so that the promise is kept in, and we and we actually keep the right people in the right jobs. Yeah, the anecdotes are are deep, right? You've got examples across the board from residential to small commercial and even large commercial. We've recently worked through a variety of uh, commercial assets with uh, problems with SEL relays. SEL is a manufacturer of a particular component. It's a smart component. It is. They're configured with intelligence to react and behave in certain ways and occasionally are programmed incorrectly. So if you have some awareness around the fact that they're tripping off and uh, how they were uh, incorrectly originally programmed and how they could be programmed, there's a path forward there to avoid that issue in the future. On the residential side, there are a lot of issues that uh, certainly require field service intervention. You've got to have a tech on site with the appropriate parts. And there we're thinking about things like how many truck rolls does it take to resolve a problem? If you can get somebody out on site with the, the right parts the first time, then 
that's a better experience for the asset owner because now you're getting the problem solved the first time. Also, a lot of issues that don't require that on-site intervention where you can interact with the site host or the homeowner and help troubleshoot and resolve uh, remotely and uh, help get systems back up and running. So if you can do that quickly, you're, again, delivering a a better uh, client experience, and you're also helping pull down the overall cost structure across the industry of of O&M by avoiding that truck roll. You know, community solar is one of the hottest topics in the whole industry for 2022. So it's no coincidence that our conversation with Jeff Kramer of the Coalition for Community Solar Access was one of our top downloaded episodes. It was part of our Community Solar series. And just to say Community Solar a couple more times, if you're listening to this the week that it publishes, I'll actually be in San Diego with Jeff at the Community Solar Summit. So please come by and see me. In this short segment, Jeff talks about what benefits Community Solar actually bring to the community, to the grid, and even policymakers as they make decisions about infrastructure investments. Let's roll the clip from episode 485 with Jeff Kramer. In describing those two parallel courses for rooftop and community solar, yeah. it's important to understand that NREL, RMI have done various studies that show that anywhere between 50 to 75 to 90% of households or customers, electricity customers, dependent on where you are in the system, don't have access to solar on their roof or on their property, whether because of rooftop angles or other factors, it's not available to everyone. And so Community Solar originally started as a way for customers that don't have access on their roof to get access to solar in their community. So if it's not on your roof, it's around the corner in the community. And I think that actually pivots to your next question, Mm -hmm. getting to sort of what is community solar to the grid, right? We know what it is to the customer. We've established that. That's access to local solar and the benefits of that solar with a direct subscription to some portion of it. Now, what is it to the grid? And what it is to the grid is actually flexible. It can be a hundred kilowatt project on a roof somewhere with two off-takers, you know, one being, say, the warehouse that houses it, and then 10 different low-income households that are local to the community. Or it can be a 10-megawatt project that's located 10 miles from the load, but it's still on the distribution system and potentially is paired with storage and is potentially an area where both the utility and the community solar providers have worked together to identify a need for a substation upgrade, right? And that substation upgrade that could be done both to provide better electricity reliability to customers as cities grow and expand is also then providing greater access to local solar through accommodating the ability to interconnect more local solar. And today, the way those upgrades are actually financed are through the the solar provider themselves. So what we like to say is community solar is not only providing clean electricity to the grid, not only providing access to solar to the vast majority of customers that don't have access to it, it's actually providing private investment in public infrastructure to upgrade grid reliability for all customers. So community solar thus can be 10 megawatts. It can be 
100 kilowatts, or really anywhere that can fit on a distribution system feeder. Typically, we found that somewhere in the realm of 5, 10, maybe even 15 megawatts, but most programs around the country are in the 2 to 5 megawatt range, with some projects out west going up to 10 megawatts, though you know there's considerations of going up to 10 megawatts, regardless where it is. The last thing I'd say about it is that we've talked about these benefits for customers. We talked about benefits for the grid. One of the additional benefits is benefits for ratepayers. New York is a great example here. Very early on, before you saw gigawatts of development on the system, New York said, "We have very ambitious climate goals. We realize that there's a, probably an opportunity here to redesign our electricity markets." and policies to best accommodate those climate goals, but also maximize cost reductions and opportunities for innovation within the system. So today, after going back to, say, 2014, I believe is the start of the REV process and the value of distributed energy resources proceeding, which created the tariffs that allowed for community solar back in 2016, you know, you had no community solar on the system. They took their time. They developed a think big approach. And now we have over a gigawatt of community solar and just, I believe it was last week or the week before, the commission greenlighted the 10 gigawatt distributed solar target by 2030. So we've seen rapid growth in a state like New York and we'll see continued rapid growth. And that's because once you achieve economies of scale, you're reducing costs, maximizing benefits to customers for projects that typically look like small utility scale projects, but they're really distribution system projects. They're offering those same benefits that a project on its roof can do. They're different benefits, right? Every project's a little bit different, but states like New York have figured out a way to create a value stack that provides compensation based on those individual benefits that the project will provide. And that's likely something we'll see expand across the country. All right. Last but not least, speaking of investments, the clean energy sector is attractive to investors and entrepreneurs across the globe. With that said, not every market is the same. And that's where my friend, mentor and former boss, Sergio Blanco of Partner Engineering comes in and shares how he helps clients entering new markets and the particular challenges of entering into the U.S. market. Here's the clip from episode 439 with Sergio Blanco. I think it's important to make a point on, on what you were mentioning. Besides being, a, uh, being the next market, I would say, uh, the U.S. For, for, for these companies, there's a lot of other attractives for the investors to come to, to, come to the U.S. First of all, it's, as, you, as, you, as we already know, it's a well-consolidated market with a rule of law and that has straight-up policy that works for everybody. Also, it has a well-established and developed finance, uh, financing industry mm-hmm. that bets and, and, and knows the market and knows how to structure this type of, 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 of transactions. Uh, difference as other markets where there might be a mm-hmm. lot of interest to get in, a lot of good projects, a lot of support from governments, but the returns are, as you were mentioning, very high because they see a lot of risk investing in those countries. And also, um, a local banking systems don't understand how to structure one of these transactions. And you and I uh, fought that a lot, if you remember. Mm-hmm. 
five six years ago even in mexico they didn't know exactly how to structure project finance uh, a facility for uh for a five megawatt project <laughs> yeah you know so they've also been fortunate for the last decade to experience growth and profitability and they've got i'll call it a war chest they've got a safe measure of investment dollars that they can afford to call play with where they Absolutely. recognize they recognize that the U.S. is a market where they can come, set up a sandbox, probably be successful, definitely export that knowledge and learning back to their home country where, as you stated, the regulators and the banks are still uh, in diapers, as we would say, on how to, yes. how to structure these financing. So if you can establish a crack, track record in the United States, it's a golden ticket. Absolutely. You're spot on. So Sergio, with that in mind... I'd like to hear sort of your takeaways for the, those two stakeholders, the international firms that want to come and invest in the United States, what's important for them to know, and then the local would-be partners here in the United States, how, how do we attract them? And, and from the first imper, uh, perspective, you've spent a lot of time working with investors who are seeking one of those three areas, either do I know enough about the market, what kind of investment will it take, and, and what are the returns, and then, you know, what are the operations requirements? Where do you see, through the lens of those questions, that the international firms you routinely interact with tend to miss steps or make mistakes? What are the key early areas that you help them avoid making mistakes? Yeah, and 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 listen, uh, we talked at the beginning uh, of of the three key uh, uh, aspects, and we talked about knowledge. We talked about about investment and operations. When a company decides abroad to come to the U.S., definitely, but def most definitely, they already have figured out the investment part and the operation side. That's mm -hmm. that's a given because mm -hmm. they know that they're playing with the big boys. Yeah. So they, they, they know that, that they, they need to, to be ready. Mm -hmm. What they don't know is how to play in this market. Yeah. They're usually aware of their local, the local way they played. Like, yeah. if, even though a local player that has operations in Mexico, Colombia, Chile, maybe Peru, what they think is that coming to the U.S., they're going to find a same legislation, a same way to do business in every state. And guess what? It's not. Every state, yeah. it's a different market. So that's the part that everybody misses when they, and, and, and that's the first cultural shock that I would, that, 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 uh, and that's the way I call it, uh, when they land in the U.S. How come, wait a minute, this is the, this is the first world. How come uh, this state that has excellent irradiation doesn't even have a, a renewable standard on place? And that's where I wanted to do business on. So guess what? No, I mean, you have to learn where you are. You have to learn, do your due diligence and start uh, finding out uh, where are the, the best places to play. And that's that's exactly what we're working with our partnering and uh, with, 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 our, with our customers, to our customers, trying to help them navigate that part of the uh, that part of the equation, which is sometimes where everybody hits their head of the wall. All right. Well, that's a wrap on the 2022 best of. Of course, it's so difficult to say what is a best conversation in Suncast because we have over a hundred such conversations contributed throughout the year. Our Tuesday episodes are tactical, practical like this, often going into one piece of expertise with a subject matter expert. 
And our Thursday episodes are thoughtful, long-form discussions looking at the personal endeavors of those on the front lines, how they've built their career and their companies and created their own impact, why they've chosen those paths. Those are our long-form Thursday episodes and they dig deep into how you can glean insights from these leaders to apply to your own careers. I hope that you do like these vignettes, that you've appreciated the shorter form content that we're putting out. This year in 2023, we're going to be doing a whole lot more short form content, both on our YouTube and here in our Tactical Tuesdays and in other locations like our Instagram and even, yes, TikTok. So I hope that you're following along on our various socials. You can connect with us on all of them by going to mysuncast.com where you'll find all the links to our newsletter and our community and the different ways you can connect on social with us, both to share this content back out into the world or to share with us your thoughts on how we can improve this experience for you. I'm so, so grateful that you've made it all the way through to the end of this episode. It means a tremendous amount to me, but it also is validation that we've created something worth listening to. So thank you for your time and your attention It is the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and it's the most important way that you could pay us back for the many hours of effort that go into creating this content for you. We'll be right back on Thursday with another one of those long-form episodes with Greg Patterson from Origami Solar, winner of the Made in America Solar Prize or America Made Solar Prize uh, from this last fall. Super exciting company and conversation, and I would encourage you as well check out our sponsors. You can find more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsors. That's how this show is brought to you for free so that you can enjoy it without having to pay anything other than your attention. As I always say, your time is the only resource you can't get back and your attention is the way that you pay us back for the many hours we invest into creating this content for you. So I want to thank you. If you'd like help in your clean energy business or your personal career growth, please click on the work with Nico button on mysuncast.com. In the meantime, I hope that I will see you back here in a couple of days. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.